0: Good morning, it's good to see you guys. Glad you're here. Hey, if you're still looking for seats in the back, there's some seats here in the front, promise you. Just a little spit won't hurt you. Hey, for the rest of you guys, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. And I'm one of the pastors. Uh, last week, we started a new series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue in that series this morning. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. And if you don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and slip your hand up and keep it raised really high, and then one of our ushers will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a copy of your own Bible, please keep the one that we're handing out so that you can grow in an understanding and knowledge of who God is um, through His Word. Um, before we start here, I want to bring some of your attention here. We we had these study guides. We're well not study guides, but kind of a, it's kind of a note taker guide here for the Book of Romans, and we're gonna do so for the Gospel of Mark. And so what you have here is all the scriptures that we're gonna be teaching through um, through the Gospel of Mark, and then also pages that you can write your own notes, your your sketchings and drawings of me or whatever it is that you do when you're bored in the middle we'll of a sermon. So you can have that. It's three dollars in the back on the way out. Um, if you don't have three dollars, just tell them I said you can have it for free. Uh, We'll we'll charge it to Jason. And so um, you can have that. Okay, let me kind of catch us up to speed briefly, just in case you weren't here last week. We said this gospel was recorded, the first gospel that we have recorded um, before Matthew and Luke and John. Um, It's an abbreviated meaning What we find in the gospel of Mark is that stories are short and they're quick and they move on to the next thing. I believe it's the ADD version of the gospel, which fits me. And so we could just continue to flow from story to story. The audience of which Mark is writing to is primarily non-Jewish people, meaning these were not people who grew up with the Jewish tradition. And so you, you see there's not a whole lot of references like in gospel, Matthew's gospel to a lot of the traditions. However, the story of Jesus is what is unfolded here. And primarily the kingdom of God. And what does it look like to be a kingdom disciple? And we're going to be talking about what does it look like to be a kingdom disciple this week, next week, and a few weeks after that. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, one, is there is an understanding of what I would call the church disciple, as opposed to a kingdom disciple. A church disciple is someone who reads the Bible, uh, prays, and, and, and shares the gospel with other people. And maybe can teach other people to do the same thing. Um, and then there's a kingdom disciple, which is nothing less than a church disciple, but begins to live their whole life, not just what they do on Sunday, Not just their personal relationship with Jesus, but they make it public. And everything that they do, they do it in such a way that honors God. And what we believe, what Mark is doing is expressing through Christ that he is fully God and fully man and he's established in his kingdom and reign. And every single person that becomes a disciple is not being a disciple of the church but actually being a disciple of the kingdom. And part of that is being a part of the church, but the kingdom is far bigger, far more massive. And we'll be looking at what that looks like over the next few weeks. And so today, for the sake of our time and structure, we're going to look at this kingdom discipleship and what it looks like. And one is going to be the expectation of this kind of discipleship. What we can expect in our daily lives and walking with the Lord. Two is going to be the command. What is it that Jesus commands of us? And then lastly is the promise of discipleship. What is it that God promises as we follow him? What he's gonna do in and and through us. And so if you uh, would, would you guys go and bow your head with me and let's pray and we'll ask God to honor and bless our time um, this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. I love that song, Lord, that you are good uh, and you are good all the time. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see your word, that you would take the spirit of Christ and illuminate the text. Remove me that we may see you, that we may see your cross that when we see the power of the gospel, and we look at our lives, and Lord, continue to ask the question, is our whole lives given to you? What areas, Lord, need to come under your lordship and your reign, your authority, your rule? God, I pray that you would allow us through the teaching of your word, through the singing of your word, through taking communion, and everything that we have for the rest of the service, to be able to offer to you our praise. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. When we concluded last week, Jesus was being baptized, and Jesus gets baptized, and if you can recall, he comes out of the water, and then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God begins to descend upon him like a dove, and then there's a voice that comes from heaven that says, you are my son, and I'm well pleased. By far, the greatest baptism that's ever been recorded, right? I don't know about you. When I got baptized, people clapped. They were excited. God didn't say, this is my son, and who I'm well pleased, right? Right? But what we learn from that is now, because of the blessed union that we have in Christ Jesus, that now what is said of Christ is now said of us by faith in him. So God does say those words, and they're applied to us. And so Jesus has this baptism moment, and it's a, a spiritual high. And then he goes to what I call the spiritual seesaw. And that is when you have a spiritual high that's followed by immediate uh, temptation or testing or trials. And so when we look at this first point, the expectation of discipleship, we begin to look at what happens next in Jesus's life according uh, to the gospel of Mark. Read with me in verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Right? Right. He's being baptized. The father's like, I'm with you. You're the man. I love you. And then immediately the spirit's saying, all right, go to the wilderness. Satan's there, and he's going to tempt you, right? That seems different and weird to us, but it's exactly what happened. And what we see is the same God who divinely orchestrated Jesus' baptism is the same God who divinely orchestrated this testing. Now, let me give you a couple things here before we continue with the story. One, the word testing and temptation is the same word in Greek. God never tempts, but he does test. Satan is the one who's tempting here. And what we understand is God does actively cause or allow all things in our life for our good and for his glory. And what we also get introduced to in this story is now Satan, that there's an adversary, that there's an enemy of God. Um, this, This Satan is the ruler of all the demons. And we're gonna talk more about demons and demon possession next week So, get ready. (laughs) That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, But what we have here is that there's there's this battle now. There's this picture where Jesus is now led by the Spirit, drove into the the wilderness or the desert, and and God is allowing him to be tested while Satan is tempting him. Now, this should remind us back to the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story of all stories, the story of the world. When we have Adam and Eve, who were put in the position in the garden where they walk in the cool of the day with God. That, that we have Adam, everything's good, God says it's good, it's good, and he says, you know what, something's not good. It's not good for Adam to be by himself, and so I'm going to make him a helper suitable for him. And so God creates a woman, and he brings the woman to Adam, and he looks at her and goes, dang, Gina, right, and he sings a song. <laughs> he names her Eve, actually. And, then, and so there, there's this picture where everything's the way it's supposed to be, but then we have Satan in the form of the serpent. And he begins to do, to Adam and Eve, what he's trying to do with Jesus here and tempting him. And that is with Adam and Eve, he began to question the goodness of God. Do you want to trust in God? Is he really good? Meaning they begin to have this voice that maybe God is not good. Maybe you need to turn in on yourself and be self-reliant and self-sufficient. And that's how you can best live life. And what we know from that story is Adam believed the lie, Eve believed the lie, and then thus bringing separation from God and all of humanity and all of us that we are separated from God. Well, now we have Jesus and now he's in this temptation, that he is being tempted by Satan. Now, Mark does not give the specific temptations here, but what we can read about in the other accounts of the Gospel of this particular story is that Satan is essentially tempting him, take the center, be the center of attention, do it yourself. We, We said last week that when we looked at the baptism, we had the blessed Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how in this Trinity, that not one person of the Trinity is in the center. The Father's not saying, give me all your attention. Nope, the Spirit is not saying, give me all your attention. Jesus is not saying, give me all your attention, but it's a self-giving nature of God that they're constantly giving love to one another and orbiting around that particular love, and that we are called to do the same, to give ourselves to God and to give ourselves to others. So Jesus um, begins to set the stage for his ministry to be our our Savior. Here's what I mean by that. He's not a divine clone of the Father. He is fully God, but he's also fully man. That means like us, like Adam, he has volition. That means the ability to choose. And so he can now choose if he's going to obey and submit to the will of God, or if he's going to do his own thing. And the same way that we can choose if we're going to obey and submit to the will of God in our life and trust that he knows best, or we can do our own thing. And so that's the position that Jesus is in. He goes from the spiritual high to now he's being tempted in the wilderness. Now, we should understand that's, that's our reality too. If you followed Christ for any time and you've had a moment where you felt like God was speaking to you, you've had a Christian experience, whether you've been at a, a, a summer camp or youth camp or something like that, where you felt like God is ministering to me, life's great, I'm, I'm, and then moments later, maybe a day later, maybe a week later, you have the strongest temptations, the strongest testings that you've ever had, right? We, we've had that before. Right? It's like, you go away, God meets you, you say, I love you, God, this is amazing, I'm never going to sin again, oh, never mind, right, like right, right, right after that, right? So, I had, this is a few weeks ago, and, and just just as a person to people, to my congregation, maybe confession, reality, is uh, <laughs> the other day, two weeks ago, um, I had what I believe to be one of the best quiet times I have with the Lord, and and my time with the Lord in prayer is not always is is dynamic. But for whatever reason, I felt like God was was speaking to me. And when I say that, guys, it wasn't God was like, oh, like look at this, look at, here, let me have some of that coffee. It wasn't like that, right? But it was enough to go, Lord, I love you. I get in my car, I turn to out of my to get out of my neighborhood, and I'm at the, the corner of College and and um, Broadway right there, and the light turns green, and I want to make a left, but there's a lady there, sweet lady. Sweet. And then she has, she has a stroller, which presumably there's a baby, sweet baby. And all I could think about was maybe like, what about what baby Jesus? I'm, I'm thinking about them, right? And so I'm waiting for them to cross the street, but they're not going for some reason. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then the guy behind me honks at me, comes from behind me, almost hits baby, basically baby Jesus, and then <laughs> keeps going and just kind of gives me this look. Everything in me, just like everything rushed to my head. So I finally turned, it just so happens that the light right there on Broadway rules are red. Hmm. So I'm behind him, I get over and pull up next to him. And then I roll down, my, he rolls down his window. So I roll down my window. And he looks at me like, what's up? I'm like, what's up, right? And everything in me is like, I will take this dude down, right? Okay, what happened? About five minutes before that, God, I love you. You're amazing. Your coffee's good. And then all of a sudden, I'm trying to lay hands on this guy in an unbiblical way. <laughs> and then it hit me, true story, it hit me like, I just kind of looked at him and just said, never mind, because I'm thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you're a dad, you're a husband, you're, you're, you're a pastor. <laughs> like, and I was like, actually, I just wrote my window and let you know my church is right down the street. If you..." <laughs> There's actually people there that would treat you better than me. No, there's, there, we have this experience. We've, we've, we've experienced that. And, 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 and Jesus gives us the, the clearest example of that. Let me just take a little bit further of this expectation of discipleship. No matter how long you've walked with Jesus, no matter how close you get to the Lord, there's going to be moments where you are extremely tested. And it's for your good. There's going to be moments that you're tempted and you fail. Jesus didn't fall. And he didn't fail. But We do. We do all the time, and if you're anything like me, you become a Christian, and you go, Lord, there's probably two things that if you took away these two things, <laughs> I can do this thing, and you realize the longer you, you grow, so it's not just those two things. There's a million things, Lord, or there's still those one or two things that continue to haunt you the rest of your Christian life. This is not a video game, that sin in itself to conquer sin. There are some things that just keep, we don't get to the next level of it, um, but what we have here in these expectation is there will be heartache, there will be trials, there will be temptation, but they're also in the midst of that God meets us. Jesus went away for 40 days. And I don't think that 40 days in itself was just a random number. I think what we have here is that Moses went into the wilderness for 40 days. Elijah went away in the desert for 40 days. God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And what happened there, there was deprivation Yes, there were separation, there were trials, but what happened every single time in Moses and Elijah and in the nation of Israel is God met them. No matter where you are, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the temptation, no matter what the trial, no matter what the test, God will meet you. You can expect that in in moments of temptation that God will provide a way. And, and, and I get it. Like, I, I, talk, I get it. that there are things that you, I wish this could just be just off my table, but I don't know why God allows these things to continue to happen in our life. And especially when it comes to our own personal struggles with our own sin. But he comforts us in saying, in the midst of that, he will meet you. That God will provide a way. This is the way the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I just want to pause there when I meet with people, when they get the point to actually tell somebody about something that they are in. And here's the reality, guys. Let me get your eyes. Some of you, you deal with sin when it gets this high. It's like weeds. You see them coming and you just deal with it. That's everybody. Some of us, we try to do it on our own again and again and again and again. So by the time that you come to a pastor, you got like a tree that's not really a tree. And it's just been growing, and it takes way more work. 99% of the people who come to us for counseling, 99%, when, it com- when it's this high, are not connected to biblical community. They're not in a small group. They don't have an RC. They don't have other friends. You kind of do the Christianity thing on your own, and then it gets here, as opposed to having the body life around you, and you can deal with it here. But even when it gets here, when people confess it, people think, I'm the only one. And the Bible's trying to, you know, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. There's no temptation that has overtaken you that's not common to man. And he says, listen, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the expectation is life as a Christian is godly and it's good because God is good. But there, is tem- there will be temptations and there will be testing. But in the midst of God will meet you. G- Jesus even has this experience that, it's, that it has here in the latter part of verse 13. It says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he, and he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering him. He's got Satan. He's got wild animals. He's communicate the dangers of just life, just life in itself and especially life in following Christ. But he says, but the angels were ministering that he was caring for him. God will always care for his people because we have a good, do- good God. So don't expect everything to be great and that there's not gonna be heartache, but at the same time, in the midst of heartache, we can trust that God is faithful, amen? So we, we, we have this picture of the expectation of discipleship. Well then, Mark does what Mark does, and as he stops that story, and goes immediately to another story, and gives us, um, gives us the, expect, excuse me, not only the expectation of discipleship, but he begins to give us, what does he give us? The command of discipleship, all right? He gives us the command of discipleship. We're gonna spend the bulk of the time on this second point. Okay, verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I love this. He says, after John was arrested, talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptist, who we learned about last week, had now been arrested for following God and given over that he was going to be, be murdered for his faith. At that time, it says that's when Jesus began his public ministry. After the testing, Jesus comes and he comes on the scene and he begins to talk about the gospel of God. Now that word gospel— we say that word a lot around here, and we're going to teach it over and over again. Gospel, we talked about this last week, means good news. And that word was not foreign to the ears of the Roman people who, Paul, excuse me, who Mark was writing to. Because gospel usually was applied to emperors or to military, not to spiritual matters. So in, in, in the case of the emperor, there was, there was actually an inscription during the time of Jesus, and also during the time of Mark, that, that said, the good news according to or the good news of Caesar Augustus. And it began to talk about his birth and his life as the emperor and the effect that it had on the society, meaning there was an event that happened. He became king. He became the emperor, and it significantly changed the lives around him. That's what good news was. It was not advice, something you needed to do. It was an event that had happened that began to bring about social, personal, physical change to people in their lives. Um, also, this happened in the military. So when you had the wars that would happen, the battles, um, primarily when you think about uh, when, when uh, Persia began to invade Greece, and and what happened was like the battles of Marathon, and then when Greek won, the, when the Greeks won, they would send heralds, they called them, or evangelists, it's the same word. They would send these heralds to come back to the community and say, "We won. We fought the war. We won the battle. You are no longer slaves. You're free." Meaning, you didn't do anything, but your whole life is changed because of what somebody else has done on your behalf. So, when, when Mark begins to say in the gospel of God, he's now saying, let me empty that cup of your military understanding, let me empty that cup of your emperor, and let me tell you what God is doing. It is the good news that Jesus Christ has come, and what he is doing, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection, that his ministries, have establishes established good news of the kingdom, that you are no longer slaves to sin, but you are free completely on behalf of what Jesus has done. In this case, what Jesus is about to do. And so Mark says, this is the gospel that Jesus begins to proclaim. And then we hear Jesus's words here in verse 15. Um, it says, or continue in verse 14. It says, the gospel of God, he came to Galilee and he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. I love that Jesus, according to Mark, starts his gospel and proclaiming in Galilee. Like Galilee to us, we only know about Galilee if we've been Christians, right? But if you lived in that area, Galilee would be the last place where a king would come and establish his kingdom. Like he would have gone to Jerusalem. He would have gone to whatever the city center was. Like he would have gone to Phoenix. He would have gone to Tempe. He would have gone to parts of Scottsdale. I mean, he would have gone to these places. But where he goes is Hila Bend, right? (laughs) So if you're from Hila Bend, you're a Christian by birth. Um, so there's, there's, there's this sense where Jesus starts in Galilee, what begins to show forth, I believe, his kingship, and that he's not going to work the way that the world works, that the paradox of the kingdom, the way up is actually the way down. Jesus says, you want to you lose your life? Live your whole life trying to gain it. But if you want to gain it, go ahead and give it away. And so he goes to Galilee when he starts proclaiming, and he says, the time is fulfilled. And what that means is everything that you've been waiting for That everything that God had said from Genesis 3 that he was going to crush the serpent's head, everything that he said through the prophets, all about the lying laying with the lamb, all about the day in which God was going to restore all things, and there'd be hope for Israel and a hope for the world, all of those things he says, that's about to happen now. And he says, the the kingdom of God is at hand. And when you hear that word kingdom, we're going to talk more about what the kingdom looks like in chapter 3 and chapter 4, but, but to give you an understanding of the kingdom, the kingdom in itself is not only the reign of God, it's not just the rule of God, but it's actually what God is doing, that he is rescuing and renewing all of creation in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And if you want a picture of what that could look like, go back and read Genesis one and Genesis two. Because Genesis one and Genesis two, we see, we see that things are the way that they're supposed to be. That there's right relationship with God, and right relationship with one another. That there's physical and psychological and social shalom that's happening. And Jesus is coming now to continue to re- re- restore and renew all that was lost and all that was broken. And so if you were an Israelite at that day, you would have been wondering, when is God going to come and bring justice? When is he going to judge? When is he going to come? And Jesus is saying that day is here. And the only reason why God had delayed was not something on God's part, but Paul lets us know in Romans that it was his patience and it was his kindness that was meant to lead us toward repentance. The reason why God had been waiting is so people like me and you may have an opportunity to know him. And then Jesus comes in the scene and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Or your translation may say the kingdom of God is near. And near has nothing to do with like um, where somebody's at, right? If somebody calls you, this is how our friends do it. Are you close? Yeah, I'm about 15 minutes away, which means I haven't left yet, all right? <laughs> when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is near or at hand, he's talking more about spatial, meaning he's saying the kingdom of God is in me. He's personifying the kingdom of God. He's embodying. He says, everything that you're looking to, everything that you've ever longed for, everything that you ever could long for, will find its amen, will find its value, will find its substance. In him, he says, I'm about to redefine everything. What success looks like, what failure looks like, what gain looks like, what loss looks like, I'm about to redefine it because everything that God was doing in all of creation, it's in me. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he gives us The command. And the command is really simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Everything I'm doing and restoring all things, I'm bringing in and I'm advancing and I'm ushering the kingdom, like cosmically, personally, communally, and then here's what you need to do. Repent and believe. And that seems really simple, but I'm not really sure that we really understand what repent and believe really means. Here's what I mean. There is a way to have self-righteous repentance and gospel-centered repentance. Self-righteous repentance usually is about yourself. You repent because of the consequences of sin. Oh, this is going to affect me. This has affected me. This may be affected somebody else. And as opposed to gospel-centered repentance, hates sin and sin itself. Understand what it does in relationship between you and God. Self-righteousness, repentance, usually only repents of the things that you do wrong. Gospel-centered repentance is repenting of the reasons of why you even do Right? Because we all know there's moments in our life where we do the right thing, but we don't do the right thing because we're so loved by God and we know it and the Spirit is at work in our life. We do it because we want the people around us to see us as people who love God and all of those things. And so we do it for the approval of other people oftentimes. When it comes to self-righteous repentance, you're always afraid that God's going to get you if you mess up. Sadly, that's, that's many of us. That every time I sin, God's looking going, dang, don't you, got this? don't you have this figured out already? I think I shared this with you before. I had one of the best teachers in the world, Mrs. Lindsay. I had to, t- I had to take Algebra 2 in order to qualify to go to college. The problem was, I was a senior in high school, and I took this Algebra 2 class with all the freshmen. And it was kind of embarrassing. Um, and I could not do word problems. Like, once I can get the formula down, I can figure out the word problem. But I could read it, and, and I couldn't get it. I'd go back to her desk, and then she'd help me get to the formula, and then I'd go do the work. And I go to the next word problem. Dang it, I go back up again. And so one time I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, I can't go up there. She's gonna be like, don't you get it? And so she called me up and she says, hey, do you need help? And I said, yeah. She goes, you can always come to me. Like, you're not dumb because you need to do this. You're never, there's never a moment where you can't come to me and I won't help you. And I feel like in the same way, God is not looking at us in our sin and going, you should know better than this now. I can't help you anymore. You're on your own, kid. And when it comes to self-righteous repentance, we think repentance is a bad thing. Like it's, I've done wrong and now I need to do better. That's not good news. When it comes to gospel sin and repentance, we understand what Jesus says. It says repent and believe. And actually, belief presupposes a repentance. Where in self righteous repentance, the only reason why you get better and try to clean yourself up is so that you can now believe. No, no, no. In gospel sin and repentance, I already realize what God has already done on my behalf. And now I'm able to repent because of who he is and what he's done. I know he always forgives me. I know he already loves me. I know that I don't have to be afraid of him being angry at me because on the cross, he already satisfied his wrath in Christ Jesus. God's not mad at me. I can, I, can, I can walk with him. I can know him. He's my shepherd. Let me give you an example of what this looks like, what repentance looks like for us, because it is not just changing behavior. It's a change in what you view and how you walk now towards God. An example could be this. Say you lie. Let's just say you might lie. Some of you, right? If you lie, re- right, self-righteous repentance will say, I'm a bad person. I should have never lied. I know better than this. And, and then you start quoting all of the scriptures you know on depravity. I'm wicked and flawed. I'm dead. I'm a worm. You may start making up stuff. I'm a double worm. Like whatever that means, right? And, and we, get, we, we think that if we could be so remorseful that God's gonna look at us and go, stop, stop, stop. I love you and I'll forgive you. You don't have to keep, no, no because that's a failure to understand the cross. The cross is that God was already beat up for you. What are you beating up yourself for? Where is it that if you lie and you understand gospel-centered repentance and belief, when you lie, you can confess and repent like this. Lord, I did lie. And the reason why I lied was I was afraid of, of losing the approval of somebody else or rejection. I wanted them to think of something of me that would be better. I, I don't know, Lord. And then repentance, that's where where you're going. Repentance is saying, I repent and already realize that I already have the approval of the one who matters the most. And if there was a fear, the biggest fear I should have is the rejection of you, God. And I never have to fear that because you gave your son Jesus. And you're able to rest in that. What you already have. Not something you have to go attain. Something you've already received in Christ Jesus. That you believe already. And in believing who God is, now you're able to repent. Jesus says, This is how you enter the kingdom, repentance and belief. And you never get past that. The way you grow in the kingdom is repentance and belief. At best, when we think of repentance and belief, we think of it as a one-time act. We did it one time at some winter camp, we did it at some college, a ministry, we did it in someone's house, we we did it, and now we're good, right? We, We treat it like driver's license. Aren't you happy? that you don't have to take another driver's license test again, right? You, when you're 16 years old, you go and you take the driver's license test and you do the, I had an 84 Regal, so I did this. And you take the, the, the driver's test and they give you your driver's license and you never have to take that test again. You're good. And in Arizona, they give you your driver's license and you have it for a million years. It's amazing. We don't go, you don't, I mean, most of us, I know for me, if I had to go take the driver's test again, I don't remember any of that stuff, right? Um, and I think when, when it comes to repentance, we, we kind of like, that was in the past, we're done. No, no, no. When Jesus says this, repent and believe, it's in the present tense. What that means is, this is something that should be happening over and over and over and over and over over again, daily, that you should constantly, believing in who God is and what he's already done, and then turning your life. Because here's what happens, we drift with the currents of this world, the currents of ideologies of this world, the currents of our own sin, and then we believe again, afresh the life and love that God has for us in Christ, and we repent to it. And then the experience of that is we begin to have a deeper understanding of who God is, our sin, and how big the gospel is, how massive it is. And so what we were able to do was put together a graphic, I believe, that could help us explain the experience of repentance and belief over and over again, and how it's centered around the gospel. So look with me to the screen. <laughs> so first we understand that God is perfect, or he's holy, and then we understand our, our sinfulness, but there's this gap, and we don't know how to be able to fill that gap. And then the good news is that Christ has sinned for us, and he dies on the cross for us. But then what happens is we continue to grow, and we continue to walk longer with the Lord, and we realize, wait a minute, God's more holier than I even thought. And I'm even more sinful than I thought. And then the gap gets bigger. And then here's what happens. Because we usually have a, a very reduced understanding of the gospel as only repentance and believing one time, the cross still seems... The same size the gospel just still seems like it did when we first realized we needed jesus and so there's still now gaps on the top and on the bottom and what we do is we try to fill those gaps in with our self-righteousness if i read more if i prayed more if i did more of these things and then we started off saying i'm going to rely on god and then we leave that and begin to rely on ourselves. you didn't do anything to save yourself therefore you're not going to do anything to grow yourself it was the good news of christ on your behalf That it made you and allowed you to enter into the kingdom. It is the good news of Jesus on your behalf that allows you to grow. And when you begin to understand that, all of a sudden, the understanding of the gospel gets bigger and bigger. When Jesus talks to his disciples and he gives them the command of discipleship here, what he is inviting us into is not something that, that is bleak, but the joy of being able to return and see him afresh again and again and again. Here's how you can see this. Talk to someone who's been a Christian for 40 years talk to them. You know what? They don't need another book. They don't need the right Christian song. They don't need to be entertained by sermons. They can hear the simple, that old rugged cross and lose it. Because they understand that God's more holy than I can ever imagine. I'm more sinful than I ever dare dream. But at the same time, I'm more, I'm more loved. I'm more welcome than accepted than I can ever imagine. Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. And I'm in his kingdom because of all that he's done. So First, Mark gives us the expectation. There's heartache, there's trial, but God meets us in it. And then he gives us the command. Jesus is in the business of reconciling and renewing and restoring and forgiving and healing. And the way that we enter in that and the way that we grow in that is by repentance and belief. And then lastly, he has the promise of discipleship. He goes to another story. Verse Verse 16, it says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, "Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men." And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father uh, Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. So here's this picture now. So so Jesus, uh, John's moving, our mark's moving fast. So he goes from the desert. He says the kingdom of God is coming, repent and believe. And then he's walking around the shore, and he sees these fishermen. Now, these guys were—this is a lucrative business, right? Fish was the primary food that people ate. And if you were a fisherman, you were good, you were qualified, you were good at at catching fish. And so at first he sees these two brothers, and he looks at them, and it doesn't tell us exactly how it happened, but I can't even— I can just see—I don't even know how Jesus walked. He probably had, you know, something like that. And then he's walking, and he sees them, and he says— follow me. He does not say, like, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm on this restoration project, and, you know, I don't know if you read it, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you heard about me. I was in the head news of the, you know, the Chronicles of Galilee or something like that, right? He doesn't say that. He just says, follow me. And what does it do? They stop this lucrative business, and they start following him. Like, they just, we're done, right? They drop the pulse. <laughs> we're going to follow this guy. And then he goes a little further, and he sees two guys with their father, and they're mending the nets. Now, you would get your nets ready for the next day of fishing. They would cast these big nets into the water, and they would, they'd get the fish. And so their, their dad's there, and he says, hey, you two, why don't you follow me? And they look, at, they look at Pops and was like, we're out. They follow him. Now, why is that significant? Well, for a few reasons. One, um, you didn't leave your job for anything, and you definitely didn't leave your family. Well, one, you didn't leave your job because that's who you were. Right? That's, I mean, that was part of your identity, and you definitely didn't leave your family because even more so that's who you were. In Eastern culture, your family is who you are, right? And that's hard for us to understand because we're a Western culture and very individualized. It is easy for us to leave our family, right? It is easy for us to say, hey, we're going to live the rest of our life in Arizona, and we're going to have kids here, and if you ever want to come see your kids, you gotta, your grandkids, you've got to come to Arizona. Some people might do that. I don't know who those people might be, right? It's easy for us. told you. I <laughs> spit. Man, I'm sorry guys, that was, uh, that was free though. Um, it's easy for us to leave our family, um, but these guys, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. Another thing why this is significant is because in that day there were rabbis and there were disciples. But what would happen is the disciple would, would, would learn the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible, memorize it, know it, and then they would go looking for a rabbi to be able to teach them about the Torah. Jesus is the rabbi going looking for the people. Another thing is, if you were going to be a disciple, you had to be very knowledgeable. You had to know some things. You had to be qualified. You had to be that guy. You were not a fisherman. You were giving your life to understanding and knowing and studying the Torah. Jesus goes, no, I don't want those guys. (laughs) I want normal, everyday people to follow me. And I'm not even telling them to follow my teaching, per se. I'm telling them to follow me, and then they'll understand my teaching. And so what we understand by by, by this is, is that Jesus is not looking for qualified people. And so, so what, what I mean by that is, he doesn't call us because we're qualified. Like, Jesus didn't come into this world and go, you know, I'm, I got a restoration project that I'm working on, and I'm, I'm gonna find people who I think can fit it. You can, you can be on my team. You're on Satan's team. You can be on my team, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Jesus goes, I'm going to, 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 the, to normal people, and you don't need to be qualified. In fact, it's better that you're not. He doesn't, he doesn't, um, he doesn't call us in order to uh, because we're good, right? And so the way that we usually, the that we usually say it is, um, Jesus, we're called not because we're qualified, we're qualified because we're called. And what that means is everything to do with the one who's calling us, everything to do with the one who's saying, come follow me, every, every, everything that's do with him, not in our abilities. And you, you see that here. It's not to say that these men left their vocation, because what we read later in the story is they do go back to fishing and whatnot. Um, for most of the time, when God calls you to himself, it's, it's always radical. It's always, I'm giving all of my life to him. It doesn't mean that you leave your vocation, right? If you said, I became a Christian, I quit my job, I think the Lord is gonna be like, eh, that wasn't smart, right? <laughs> so so some, of, some of us will, but most of us, it's saying be a follower of Christ in banking, if you're in banking. Be the best follower of Christ that you could possibly be if you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, if you're a plumber, if you're a teacher, whatever it is, but it's always radical. It's always radical. So here's what I have to ask you. Are you that type of follower of Jesus? That when God calls you, is it basically God is calling me to only give him part of my life that I felt like I needed help in, but the rest of my life or other parts of my life, they're not completely under his lordship and guidance. So, so, so the way that I handle my money, that's basically on me. The way that I view my, my sexuality it's basically upon me. My biological appetite is what is going to guide me, not what God says. It seems archaic. I can't trust Him because you don't believe that He's good. Therefore, you're not following Him. You're not following Him. To, to, to be someone who follows God is just not say I have the spiritual splits where part of me is over here, another part of me is over here. And being all in, by the way, is not about your behavior. Being all in is not about um, what you're doing now, it's your trajectory, it's where you're headed. You see, when you become a Christian, it is not about getting yourself together, getting all the things that you needed, that God requires done, and then coming to God and saying, here's what I can offer. No, no, no. It's God Himself in Christ offering you a new life. And you by faith following Him. And every single person who understands that process of discipleship, that it is in itself a process of you follow Him. And it, and, and discipleship, hear me, discipleship is not about reading books. Here, here's what we've reduced discipleship to. First, you gotta like coffee. Two, you got to read books. Three, you, you got to like more coffee. And where discipleship happens is in coffee places. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not against reading books, and I'm definitely not against coffee. I think it's a gift from God. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, follow me. What that means is discipleship happens best in everyday life. Okay? And it's not about where you're at. It's not the levels. So hear me this. Men, if you have the spirit of Christ in you and you love Jesus, you should be discipling somebody. And you, don't, you don't go, don't go to someone after and go, hey, follow me, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus did that, okay? Um, but walk alongside people. Women, you gotta, you gotta find someone to walk along with. Even if they're a half a step behind you or a half a step in front of you, it, it doesn't matter. We'll provide the resources for you you got to start being in each other's life. You have to start being in each other's life. Remember what I said earlier? That the people who have issues, right, they stay this small when they're in the community of people, when they're in discipleship relationships. Those who kind of do it on their own, no community, know one another's, it gets a lot bigger and it's always a lot harder. Now God's faithful, but He's faithful also through His Word and through the people that He's given us to walk alongside Him. And, 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 and that's how we, we begin to do discipleship. What we do is we wait for this thing called a mentor. And usually we have in our mind what a mentor is, right? This, our, the mentor I need is 70. Um, they've been married for 70 years. Um, they helped Jesus write the Bible. Um, and it's just like, oh, oh, oh you're not, you're not going to get that. But everything that you need for you to grow in the Lord, God will provide. That is the absolute promise of him and your discipleship pro- process. And so when you understand this promise of discipleship, one, yes, we do, we do follow. He calls, and we do follow him. No matter who we are, no matter where we are, we, we drop everything that we have and say, Lord, everything of who I am, I'm giving to you. I'm following you. And the call that you have in my life, first and foremost, is to give myself to Jesus. Not, not, not to a particular church, to Jesus. To give myself to all of who Jesus is. All of those other things, community, fellowship, church, they flow from first following Jesus and here's the promise that he has here in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and here's what he says I will make you become fishers of men. He says, I will make you, meaning this is something I'm so committed to. I'm more committed to your spiritual project, your spiritual growth than you could ever be. And that is good news. You know why? Because he tells us that he who begins a good work, which is himself, he's the one who calls, he's also the one who's going to be able to finish it. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord. Some of you, you're going, I'm here and I haven't been to church in a long time. He's more committed to you than you're committed to yourself. Some of you are going, I'm here and I come all the time, but I've seen no growth. He's more committed to you than you're committed to yourself. On both people, it's good news. If you find yourself trying harder, it's because you're not resting in him. Trust that he's the one who's called. And he's the one who promises. Let, 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 me, let me close with this illustration. When I was, um, I was teaching elementary, I was student teaching, and you, know, you give elementary kids, junior high kids, high school kids, adults, you give them projects, and these kids will come back with the most amazing projects in the world. Did you do that? Oh, yeah. No, you didn't. Your dad did that, Like you know what I mean? And if you were like me and you grew up and your dad couldn't help you with the project, you hated that. Like, kids would come in when I was in school and they would have like a robot or something, that's it's like, oh, wow. And I'd have like a, a Frosted Flakes box with a hole cut out of it or something like that, right? <laughs> because that's what I could bring. But when somebody that was greater, was better, was more committed to their education than even they were, man, they came in with, you know, with E.T., like, you know what I mean? So when it comes to walking with the Lord, we do need to understand the expectations, that there are highs that are lows, but God meets us there. That the commandment that we have, that we have to do over and over again is repentance and belief, a biblical understanding, a Jesus way of repenting and seeing his life and love. And when it comes to following Jesus as a disciple, This is something that he himself is presenting. We can trust that our Father, who is good, who gives us the Holy Spirit that empowers us, who gives us the life of Jesus applied to our life, that whatever, when we were able to be presented before God, he's gonna look at us and go, that's exactly what I've been looking for. You don't have to look to the right and look to the left and compare yourself to other people. All you gotta do is look at the word and look to Christ and you'll see how beautiful you seem in the eyes of God. And remember the words that he told Jesus. You are my son. And I'm well pleased with you. God is the one who promises that he will start it and he will finish it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your your good news. God, I pray that we would be able to recalibrate our hearts and look at our lives, Lord. Do we follow you, God? And be able to examine the areas of our life that we have not fully given to you. Where we give ourselves to the approval of men, we give ourselves to the seeking of control or power or status or success pride, whatever it may be, God, that we'd be able to return and see all that we already have in Christ that is ours. We thank you for the great grace that's been extended to us. We thank you for the life and love and the blood of Christ that's been shed for us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that is within us, and we ask, Lord, that we would continue to be able to share this good news and live out this good news to those around us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.